0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of Biotics Research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine and today is no exception. If you like what you're hearing over our years of broadcasting this podcast, please, please, please consider shooting over to iTunes and leaving a review. I would be most grateful. All right, today we're talking with just really one of the fabulous luminaries of the functional medicine field, Dr. Datis Karazian. Uh, I know you know who he is and hopefully we'll touch upon the many, many, many different areas that he's working on and you get to hear about the, your particular favorite Datis area, but his background. He has a doctor in chiropractic, uh, which he obtained from Southern California University of Health Sciences. Uh, He's also got an MS in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, uh, and a PhD and doctor of health science from Nova Southeastern University. His PhD in was in health science with concentrations in immunology and toxicology. Uh, he completed a postdoctorate training at Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital. Uh, at the same time, he completed a Master of Medical Science degree in clinical investigation, also from Harvard. Uh, he's now a professor, a research scientist, a functional medicine healthcare provider, and uh, in, actually an educator beyond. Um, in healthcare, he develops evidence-based models using diet, nutrition, lifestyle, and neurological exercises for various chronic diseases. He's an associate clinical professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and a research fellow at Harvard Medical School and a research fellow at the Department of Neurology at Mass General Hospital. Dr. Karazian, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you, <laughs> So when I was reading this bio, which incidentally is the abridged bio, <laughs> <laughs> my first question, my first thought was, "What's a day in your life these days, Datis?"
1: So I have a, a unique schedule. I have I, I do a research and writing one week, and I see patients uh, the other week, and it alternates month to month. So I usually just wake up, uh, try to get a quick workout in, and then I just start hitting papers, reading papers, and or hitting a patient case file that I need to go through with a patients. So it alternates between reading research papers, writing, doing data analysis, to um, getting ready to um, evaluate a patient and figure out a strategy to manage their case. So those are my two main hats, either doing research writing uh, for education and manuscripts, um, or for uh, seeing patients. So <laughs>
0: Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay. So then are you, your practice is in California? Is yes. I practice of? in San Diego. You're in San Diego still. Okay. And are you with other clinicians or are you in your own? No, office? I have just a
1: solo practice. Um, and, uh, I've always, uh, just wanted the piece of having a quiet environment just with me and a patient. And so I don't have anyone else there. It's, it's a really, it's basically a small office, uh, with a bunch of examination equipment and everything everywhere and like a living room environment and patients come in and then we just sit down. Uh, I usually spend the full day with the new patient wow. and figure out everything. And uh, my exam usually takes about four hours and uh, um, it's very thorough. And then we send them out for labs and imaging and anything else we need to do. And then we put together a treatment plan. Um, it takes me a few days to organize the treatment plan and really think through it. So I only see a small handful of uh, new patients a month. Um, no more than six and most months mostly just four uh, complicated cases and uh, I spend uh, quite a bit of time on each one.
0: Okay yeah I know you do and are you are you accepting referrals? I mean I'm assuming your waiting list is is probably... uh
1: huge yeah I mean we're always we're always working with uh, new patients I mean we require a lot for new patients We require them to get all their past medical records send us detailed narratives do a long paperwork so mm-hmm. um, we get a lot of them that fil- don't filter through because you know they're not willing to give us all the information that I need to figure out what's going on with their case
0: okay so
1: even though we do get a lot of referrals by the time people go through the case review process getting all the material to us um, we kind of you know uh, narrow it down to the amount of people we can handle so it works out great
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's perfect. That's, yeah, that sounds, that sounds, that sounds, you know, not a unique model among, you know, in a profession where we're already spending a lot of time with folks, but we will yeah. link to your, you know, your appropriate contacts um, as you'd like us to have on our show notes. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about how you got into the field and, you know, you've You've got a lot of initials after your name. You've continually pursued really depth education. You know, I've been following you on your in your PhD trajectory and some of the cool postdocs you've been doing with Martha Herbert. And I know um, Arista Vajani was your, I think, your PhD advisor and just layers of cool work that I'd love to drill down on. So just kind of walk me through how you got into functional medicine and then we'll you know, it, it brings us to current, and then we'll talk about some of some of that.
1: Sure, I mean, I got into functional medicine because I had a sick family member and uh, they were helped by someone who did nutrition at the time where functional medicine still wasn't uh, developed as a concept and as an institution as the IFM. And uh, I started going to all the IFM meetings and go, okay, this, this totally makes sense. And uh, this whole model of doing laboratory analysis and not guessing and uh, doing a systems biology approach seemed to be the most logical, and it just resonated with it right away, and uh, I was helped, my mom was helped with the chiropractor, but nutrition, so that's what I ended up doing, I didn't even think of any other route, mm. and then when I um, finished with that, I realized I needed to learn more about nutrition, so I went and got my master's in nutrition, and then as I was going through the process, I, like, I really need to understand research, and uh, so then I was working with Dr. Vijnani, he's like, you really need to really own your data analysis, and I'm like, okay, so then I went to and finished that uh, clinical investigation course at Harvard Medical School just on data analysis and statistics and research methodology. And then I was got a chance to do my postdoc there. Um, so I was just around some of the best researchers and really learning how to do good medical research and how to do proper data analysis and study designs. And it's been a great journey. I mean, it's been so great. It's been fun all the way along. And uh, now I feel like I've been able to finally put stuff together like I never have before. Now that I have this background in and, uh, and research and, and I've always practiced with chronic patients. So it's been, uh, it's been a fun journey. It's never It's, it's been enjoyable.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. It's, it is, it's, it's been fascinating to watch you. And I think you're just bringing a lot of richness to the field. Listen, I just want to jump back to your, you know, to your, to a day in the life of Datis. Sure. Because when you and I were, and, and just, I just want to point this out to our listeners. So, you know, I'm reading a pretty cool interview that you gave to Dr. Bob Browntree, and I'll link to this in our show notes. Uh, so folks, if you have uh, access to alternative and complementary therapies, if you have access to that journal, or if you want to actually pay for this, it is behind a paywall. You can download a great conversation that Dr. Roundtree and Dr. Krasian had. Um, but, you know, as I'm reading your background, Atis, and just, you know, over the years that, that you know, our paths have crossed, I know you're a busy guy and you're doing a lot of stuff. And I'm like, you know, is he actually walking the walk and, and, uh, you know, applying what you're, what you're teaching your patients and lecturing on? And you just, add, you know, and we, we were talking about it, you mentioned that you take the whole summer off with your with your family like you really just kind of check out and get into some what sounds like is probably really grounding nourishment so can, I, let me just ask you so why don't you speak to that rather than me making a comment how you actually manage this and engage in some degree of self-care as well
1: yes i do take the summer off so i do have uh i just kind of always been fascinated with how europeans live and my wife and i years ago decided you know we need to just take time off as a family and just disconnect from the world. So we work very, very hard throughout the year. And then we plan for the two months off in the summer and we just kind of disconnect from the world. And uh, I still have to stay in touch with some patients because they need, they need constant the communication, but, uh, but it's just a matter of, uh, you know, having time to find out who you are and be with your family and not getting stuck in the rat race, which I've done. And, um, I also do take one day off a week where I don't do anything. Um, and that seems to really make things work yeah. where I'm excited. So just one day off a week and you re- plan no work and just don't plan anything. not even a, a phone call or a meeting or anything, um, can really right. help you revive and function and, uh, stay at peak performance. So I not know all this cause I've completely burnt out like most of us have. And I'm sure you have anyone know, who's yeah. really been, uh, Really excited about what they do, but uh,
0: right. Well, you're at La Melinda, and you know they're a blue zone. That's where you're teaching, and I think that's kind of the Seventh Adventist way, isn't it? I mean, they really actually take a day of rest on Sunday, unlike most of us.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know much about the Seventh Adventist, even though I I teach at La Melinda. I know that they're um, they're very. close group and they do have a huge family and, and, and community together and they do take the day off and um, they're very much instrumented to diet and nutrition which is great for medical school um, but yeah it is true It is a blue zone and people there have been found to have less cardiovascular disease and live longer and I think a large part of that is just the great sense of community they have and uh, trying to you know do things like take a day off and balance yeah. things out
0: yeah so talk to me about your your PhD work. And that was one of the reasons I really, I wanted to have a conversation with you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you've been looking at cross, so you, you're looking at, at sort of neo, neo antigens, so chemical, uh, protein antigen Mm -hmm. antigens. And I think you were doing some research in that with, um, Dr. Vojdani, and you're looking at cross reactions and so forth. So kind of talk about your, your PhD work and, you know, maybe some of the sure. research out of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. So my PhD mentor was uh, Dr. Ista Vijdani, And I was very fortunate to have him as a mentor in my life. And my actual PhD thesis was the association between tetropromethysphenol A and neurological uh, target sites. Um, and we were able to show that basically the, the premise of the, the, what we were able to prove was that chemicals circulate in the body, but they bind to proteins and when they bind to proteins, they change the structure of the protein and the protein becomes a new antigen. And then that antigen now uh, can trigger inflammatory reactions and then that new protein antigen may have the potential to have cross reactivity or molecular mimicry with uh, self tissue proteins. So we were able to show um, a very strong relationship between fire retardants and the development of neurological autoimmunity in my PhD. And it's just a different model. It's a new model where, you know, we always think of chemicals as being toxic and they destroy the mitochondria and they cause the oxidative stress. And uh, my PhD work was showing that there's a completely different mechanism, mm. which is really involves chemicals aren't just toxic, but they can change proteins. And then when yeah. they change proteins, that becomes the new antigen. And it was a completely different model of right. autoimmunity.
0: How did you... I mean, how did you do that? How did you figure out that, so, to, so BPA is mm-hmm. damaging a particular protein structure, and then that compound becomes antigenic, and there's a molecular mimicry with actual tissue? So so you essential, can, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
1: So I was very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Vajdani as a great mentor, uh, number one, and uh, it was really through his guidance and his conversations and um, his uh, help to that, that led to. Led, led to my thesis, and uh, but basically for the most part, you can look at every amino acid sequence uh, in the yep. So, yeah, <laughs> we can print it out, and then you can match and see if they are linked together. And if they are linked together, then you can do uh, you can use monoclonal antibodies and look for specific cross reactivity mm-hmm. with a lysine. And there's a lot of trial and error, and there's a lot of uh, you know time where you think something's going to work and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, but it was just a matter of uh, you know having a really experienced mentor to help me. Um, yes. And discussions that made the difference. I was very fortunate to have um, great mentors in my career, and and uh, um, and I think my PhD work was really based on having a great mentor. <laughs> yeah, that really helped me. Yeah.
0: Learn Yeah, stuff. yeah. yeah he is. So I can't take
1: really any credit for it myself. It was, <laughs> <laughs>
0: So it sounds like you asked you asked the white the you know the right compelling questions. The only Not, thing I
1: knew was to find who the right mentors were. So far, that's the only credit I can give myself.
0: <laughs> so we're all exposed to BPA.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, unfortunately, a lot of it. I mean, unless we're wearing gloves when we go to any store, you know, mm-hmm. or, or turn down receive, you know, or a receipt. I mean, it just right. it's like BPA is just horribly ubiquitous and right. there's a ton of good research i mean you know thinking about randy Jurdle and the yeah. agouti mouse model and you know bpa causing the you know expression of the agouti gene and you know turning on cardiovascular disease and obesity and all of that and then there's of course you know the bpa research as an endocrine disruptor. and but who like in terms of this cross reactivity potential like is there any particular population who's vulnerable to this or are we all vulnerable uh, with this chronic BPA exposure.
1: So we if you look at the studies published, one study published found that if they test any random human, 90% of the population they test will have very high levels of BPA. So we know most people have them. We s- published a study in the Journal of Applied Toxicology a couple of years ago where we checked to see, well, how many of the people in the population have antibodies to BPA bounding, bound to albumin, the protein, the uh-huh. blood. and it was about 13%. Okay. So one of the key things we learned was that even though most people have very adults levels of BPA, there's only a subset that actually make antigens against them. So then the, the question is why, like, why does that happen? So one of the groups we studied was Parkinson's disease patients, because people, patients with Parkinson's disease have been shown to have impaired pathways to clear BPA. And uh, so if you can't clear BPA out of your body through your biotransformation pathways, phase one, phase two in the liver, then the BPA sits around in your blood. And then the most abundant protein in the blood is albumin. Yes. Um, They're the help with their osmotic pressure and so forth. So then we looked at BP binding to albumin, and then we found, yeah, people have antibodies against this this protein. And then what we did is we looked at associations and risk uh, ratios between these new proteins with BPA and uh, alpha-synuclein and other autoimmune target proteins, and we found really, really significant uh, associations. So I think it's a combination of... Why people react and build antibodies to chemicals, not protein, is first of all, they probably can't clear them. They can't biotransform them, yes. which is a key, key concept in functional medicine. Right. And then also, they lose what's called immune tolerance. So we don't react to everything, we only react to some people that start to react to everything, lose their Treg function, or their dendritic cells are overactive, or they have intestinal permeability, or, or things yes. like that. So it's a combination of all the things we treat in functional medicine biotransformation issues, loss of tolerance, permeability dysfunction that really lead to that expression
0: awesome that's 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 I mean it's great I mean it's it's disheartening that you know 90% of us have a BPA burden um, and that some of us just can't clear it over time but you know understanding the pathophysiology as you've just outlined in functional medicine also provides the map you know to back out of it, and ideally, you know we're doing prevention. In fact, you I know you have a neuroinflammation conference coming up, and we'll link to it on the show notes, folks, and uh, Dr. Krasin will will tell us about it as well. So, um, so basically, we need to be we need to have our biotransformation pathways humming along. And what's interesting, one of the things I was taught back in the you know in the lab when I was working under Richard Lord is that you know you spend Unlike using glutathione as a redox compound, when you're actually using it as a detox molecule, you spend a mole, you know, mole per mole of whatever you're moving out. So if somebody's got an endless burden, they need to be replenishing those biotransformation compounds. So if somebody's, you know, inundated with BPA, they're going to need glycine and glutathione and, you know, whatever biotransformation pathways, you know, they're going to need those nutrients um, replenished over time. Uh, And so, certainly, if we're inundated with toxicity and we're not adequately nourished, uh, you know, the levels could accumulate and we're not clearing them. Um, And then you talked about gut and the loss of tolerance, so microbiome disturbance, um, intestinal permeability. Um, Like, in your mind, what, you know, what would be the first imbalance to happen? Or is it just kind of concurrent exposures through, through life? Um, you know, gut imbalance, liver imbalance? I mean, how might you you, you think through the peeling away the onion?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think, so for me, if I see someone who's, um, if we do, for example, a food immune reactivity profile and they react to every single food, then we know they've lost their oral tolerance. So we focus on their Treg function and their gut and the dendritic cells more, and then it's, then maybe start the biotransformation pathways. So I like to do Cyrex array 11 to check for chemical immune reactivity. And I'd like to do Cyrex array 10 to check for food uh, reactivity. So if I see a lot of uh, chemical antibody reactions with Cyrex array 11, then I may start with biotransformation pathways. And if I see a lot of loss of tolerance to food proteins and in the food protein, it, um, we may start with the gut, but a lot of times we just do both together and, uh, you know, it's not that hard to support someone's tolerance by things like vitamin A and vitamin D and uh, sugar chain fatty acids like butyrate and then support them with, um, let's say, you know, detox biotransformation product to, to help their phase one, phase two pathways together as they're making some lifestyle and dietary changes to kind of break the vicious cycle. Because at the end of the day, it's a vicious cycle. So it's kind of like how do you approach uh, pulling on the web with as many different factors that can unwind it? So, it's typically a combination approach, I think, like how most people function less in functional medicine practice. Um, yes. Right. That's right. how I usually do it. I don't think it's much different than other practitioners.
0: Yeah. It, okay. Got it. Um, what about, just out of curiosity, your, th- your thoughts on um, using like immunotherapy, sublingual immunotherapy, and uh, building tolerance that way?
1: Well, I think it's heterogeneous. I think when we look at the different antigens, like low-dose antigens, to see an effect. Um, for me clinically, I don't, I don't know what the other variables are that make it work or not work. Um, so it's not the first line of therapy, but if we do get desperate at the times, we'll have patients go that route mm-hmm. um, because we're just running out of options and ways to support them. But um, there's obviously s- some clear literature that shows that it has a very immune modulating effect. Um, yes. In isolated research studies, but but in real practice, there's too many variables that don't make that as clear as we'd like it to be. And uh, so it's not an area that uh, I have a lot of expertise in, and it's not my first uh, line of treatment because I simply don't know what the the variables are that make the the change that, that some of these studies show.
0: Right, right. Well, I would imagine that it has to do with some of what you've already outlined, you know, intestinal sure. permeability, vitamin D, vitamin A. Uh, you mentioned butyrate. What kind yeah. of what kind of diets are you prescribing for... Um, well, I work population? with
1: a lot of autoimmune patients and I work with a lot of um, patients with the uh, head traumas and neurological diseases. Uh-huh. So I definitely... I mean, it's the very baseline of doing a gluten-free diet with most of these patients. Uh, but most of the patients are already on a gluten-free diet by the time I get to see them. Yes. And then I guess the next level up would be like a paleo diet. And then the next level from that would be an autoimmune paleo diet. And then maybe the next level from that would be uh, maybe a ketogenic diet. Uh, and then the next level of that would be like a microbiome diverse diet in combination with the ketogenic diet. <laughs> And then the other thing that we've been doing... You, with,
0: let, me just stop, let me just stop you. What do you mean a microbiome-diverse diet?
1: So I think one of the problems we have in functional medicine is we, you know, our patients have the same thing is they, they get off gluten or dairy and they feel great. So then they keep looking for more foods to take out of their diet. And then they eventually take up so many foods out of their diet that they're not eating much. And yes. they stop eating a diverse form of foods, their microbiome diversity goes away. Yes. And then when they lose their microbiome diversity, their tolerance becomes disrupted. So now they start to react to everything. So, one of the key things is a, a microbiome diverse diet is really making sure that they have as many different vegetable fiber proteins as possible. Um, despite even when things show up on the lab tests, as long as they're not nightshades or lectins, we um, seem to really support a really diverse um, vegetable intake to get that microbiome as diverse as possible. So we have a lot of patients that come in that have, like, have autoimmune disease and they're on gluten-free, dairy-free. They're only eating like a few yes. things and then they have the same salad every day or the same yes. lunch every day. And then yep. like, when you look at their um, bacterial diversity in their gut, it's gone. They don't have any. Mm-hmm. So with those patients, it's kind of like an opposite approach. We want them to start eating all these different yes. different things to, to get their diversity back. So that's a common thing also with diets in my practice. We'll see a lot of patients that have, have suffered from an autoimmune disease and they've lift, limited everything. We had to get them to eat foods again and try to get their microbiome back to functional, um, yep. or to actually more diversity, so that that could be we may do that. Their brain inflammation in combination with putting them in a ketosis state, because we can do ketogenic diet with vegetables, with no problem. Yeah. And um, so I do. I tend. I think for the patients that I see, there in like the, the most severe patients I see have. Brain dysfunction to the point they have neurological autoimmunity and maybe autoimmune to other target sites. So they may have six or seven autoimmune reactions and then their brain's in trouble and then they have now neurological deficits and they can't function. And then with those types of patients, we'll probably put them in a ketogenic diet to get ketosis because ketones have actually been shown to reduce brain inflammation. They're not yeah. just field sources for the brain. And yeah uh, yep. And uh, there's two studies now that show that uh, ketones can help heal and less flax. So there's this very uh, powerful anti inflammatory effect. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do that in combination with a diverse list of vegetables to really get their microbiome as diverse as possible and see if we can get their TREG functions to improve and their tolerance to improve. And uh, so I, that's kind of where I end up with some of uh, my more chronic patients when we're doing a combination of a very diverse plant fiber diet um, in combination with. Um, getting into a ketogenic state, yeah, really bring down their systemic inflammation and their brain inflammation.
0: So give me, you know, we are seeing more and more sort of, quote, orthorexic patients come to us, people mm-hmm. who've really limited their diet and, and there tends to be um, a lot of anxiety with expanding it. I, I, you know, I'm curious what, you know, what are some of the vegetables that you're talking about? Like what are some of the outliers? Is it the, well, just you tell me.
1: So basically we'll go, we'll just tell patients and say, Hey, go to the health food store, go to the grocery store, get as many vegetables as you can. Just avoid the nightshades. So, you know, no tomatoes, no eggplants, you know, and avoid the lectins, no nuts and you know seeds. And we haven't, I haven't get those all, break them all up, put them in a blender, <laughs> like a Vitamix. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to juice it. I want the fiber. Yeah. So And then I haven't put in a Vitamix and I haven't drink that, uh, um, once a day, and then we can change to see their microbiome change pretty quickly when they start doing that. Sure. So it's really as many as they can possibly put together. The to, uh, as far as vegetable sources, the better. Um, we know lectins are an issue. We just just did a an data analysis on the study we haven't publish it, but um, we looked at 400 yeah. subjects and we found if you have lectins, your risk for autoimmune reactivity goes up like 400% for whatever autoimmune marker you have.
0: I, you know, I was going to ping you later on lectins. Talk to me about that. That's kind of, it's been a controversial just to- topic in our space at, yeah, you know, at I IFM, where we both sure. come from. Um, yeah. But yeah, t- yeah, talk to me about what you found.
1: So I can tell you from doing some data analysis where we looked at 400 samples, where we looked at 20 different tissue antibodies, we found that if a person did have, um Immune reactivity to lectins. Not everyone has immune reactivity to lectins. So I think, you know, to say everyone needs to be off them is a little bit too much of an issue. I think it's, uh, it's just not correct. But there are people that definitely do have reactions to lectins, and that's a big issue. And if they do have antibodies to lectins, we know without doubt that the risk for autoimmunity goes up dramatically. And also, the key thing with lectins is also this process called agglutination, where you get proteins that stick together. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've ever looked, you know, people look at rheumatoid factor. Rheumatoid factor is IgG and IgA agglutinating together. So whenever you see positive rheumatoid factor, um, for example, you know, they have agglutination issues and, you know, they're very prone to lectin issues. So patients like that, we definitely want them off lectins. And when we're dealing with an autoimmune, trying to get diversity. I do like to have them off lectins. And then the other things that I like to use in people do have reactions. i like to know, like the antibodies, um, I use compounds that decrease agglutination. I use like feverfew, impositine, bromelain, ginger extract combined together, and that helps with uh, reducing agglutination. Sometimes patients have rheumatoid factor issues or people that are very sensitive to lectins. But uh, it's just one so of the will things you, be-
0: will you actually see antibody, antibody levels drop when you use those interventions?
1: Um, we don't actually see antibodies drop, but we'll see things like rheumatoid factor change
0: you'll see that drop you'll see the 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 concentration of rheumatoid yeah, factor reduce what about yeah. what, what about like tpo or um, some of the other antibodies anti nuclear antibody i suppose those aren't necessarily agglutination products so you
1: can you repeat that I kind of lost,
0: I'm, I'm th- sorry will you okay so so you'll actually see rheumatoid factor drop but, we yeah. but you don't you don't see other... Com- are there any other markers associated with agglutination that you might see change using this combination?
1: No, that's the only one we've been able to see so far. Okay. We don't have a really good uh, marker for that yet. Okay. But we well, we actually- can check foods that have lectin antibody. you know, lectin foods and see if they have high antibodies. The reason I like the Cyrex Ray 10 so much is they actually check for the uh, agglutinin part of the, the vegetable, which is the lectin portion for a portion of the vegetable. So if you do like a Cyrex... Um, food sensitivity panel, which is, I think, the, the best one out there. And, and I work with them, so I do have bias and conflict of interest. But, um, but with uh, them, they actually do check the specific agglutinin for each of the different key vegetables. And uh, when you see some patients only have like strong reactions to all the agglutinins, you know they're going to have significant reactions to lectin exposure.
0: Okay. And what percentage of your autoimmune patients are lectin intolerant, would you say? Um,
1: 30, but, uh, th- about 30%, I, 30 to 40% I see lectin reactions with, with okay. Autoimmune disease. Yeah. Okay,
0: all right, that's it could be more,
1: I mean, that's just for sure, obvious ones, you
0: know. Yep, yep, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, all right, what else do I wanna ask you on this topic? I, okay, here's my other question. Now you're again you're living in a blue zone over there, or at least you're nearby Loma Linda University in the heart of one of the main blue zones. And when you look at blue zone data, all of those folks are eating loads of lectins. They're eating wheat, you know, they're eating things that we're commonly pulling our patients off of. So clearly one can live a very long life eating things that for others are toxic. So there's there are some underlying variables. Differentiating the hundred-year-old centenarian in Loma, Loma Linda, you know, versus right. the folks coming to your practice. So, tease that apart for me.
1: Well, I think there's a there's there's lots of different variables, and when we look at the blue zone data, it's very general. And when you I think if you were to stratify the data and you were to look at uh, lifestyle factors, and you would see association with other studies that really show the fact that they do have social groups that they do have a lot of interaction that way that may have much more of an effect on, let's say, a lectin exposure that's causing their illness. So um, I don't think I don't think it's conflicting data. I just think the data on blue zone has been too general and not stratified enough, so we can't see the the clearest signals. So we have to kind of look at the other studies that have been published on on uh, lifestyle and risk factors and cardiovascular disease and that. But I, my 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 assumption is I think I think for most people we underestimate how impactful. Um, social interactions yeah. and community are and I think yeah. that's one of the, the key things in the blue zone is that it, yeah. um, not so much the cellular foods
0: well you know the other thing that I've thought about um, because I'm compelled with the fact that it does seem I, and I think you're right I think they could drill down into the, the data a little bit more but um, the fact that they do you know they drink they're yeah. eating loads of wheat and so forth Um, and they're living these really long kind of lovely lives and they do have strong community they do have all these they've cultivated a lot of these really important habits that you outline they're also you know they're also not living in um, in the midst of high stress kind of sedentary um, uh, perhaps toxin laden exposures that you know those of us in the west are um, are in I mean, even in Loma Linda, I think their lives are, might be structured a little bit differently, adhering to some of the Seventh-day Adventist ideas. Um, you know, so perhaps intestinal permeability and, and, and you know, the microbiome, some of these impacts of the Western lifestyle are bypassed. Does that make sense? Yeah, in, I think In so. addition I think, the community.
1: And I think Loma Linda, as a, as a region, is changing, too. I mean, there used to, I remember uh, hearing that there was a huge uh, – Issue when McDonald's was first moving into the mm-hmm, uh, moon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, but at, at the right. end, of the day, I think um, if they were to reevaluate the blue zone, it may have different data now from some yeah. of But we don't know. We don't know. But someone's got to do it. And uh, It'd be interesting to find out.
0: What is the mechanism co- prompting nightshade reactivity? And what, well, first of all, let me ask you two questions. What kind of, what's the percentage of night nightshade reactive? folks you see in your practice and you are, and, and we could talk about autoimmune specifically. Sure. Well, and, and what's the mechanism or mechanisms?
1: Well, I mean, pretty much all night have lectins. So there's a lectin, agglutination okay. connection with them, yep. which I think is the main one. Okay. Um, and okay. I think it's, and I think it varies for different autoimmune diseases. I think, um, so when you look at uh, autoimmunity and you have antibodies and the antibody structure in the target protein, we know that certain autoimmunities have more sensitivity and proneness to agglutination, and this is where lectins come in. And for sure, the um, rheumatoid and uh, joint autoimmune diseases, where you look at collagen antibodies and uh, arthritic peptide, peptides and citrullated antibodies, lectins play a huge role. But they don't necessarily play a role with even some things um, you would suspect, like myelin antibodies. We see a lot of patients that have myelin antibodies and no reactions to lectins. So... I don't have um, the clear data analysis on that yet, but I can tell you just from observation of the clinician, I can tell you that lectins are definitely a key factor in in some autoimmune diseases more than others. And for sure, in joint autoimmunity, we see that association. Some of the um, data we just analyzed with 400 subjects showed very, very high reactions with uh, um, arthritic peptide and collagen antibodies with lectins. So, um, I think it also has to do with your autoimmune target proteins. So some people have systemic autoimmunity. Some people just have like Hashimoto's. Some people just have RA. Some people have just MS. Some people have a combination of them. But I don't think lectins play a role in every autoimmune disease. I think it's specific to autoimmune disease, very prone to agglutination.
0: Right. Okay. And then that again is talking, you think the musculoskeletal autoimmune diseases seem to be most prone to agglutination.
1: (laughs) Well, for sure, the yeah arthritic ones, um, but we didn't. We didn't, but we do see uh, risk for all autoimmunity to some degree, but most dramatically joint. Just from some some preliminary data analysis, so we're we're actually writing a manuscript right now. Um, hopefully, we can get that published.
0: Okay, year. I was just that was my next question. When will this when will <laughs> this be published? I so in your experience clinically, if you pull somebody, if you put somebody on a full autoimmune paleo, which is a lectin. Mm-hmm nightshade free diet along with all of the other freeze um do you see turnaround relatively quickly and then does the introduction if they go out and have some refried beans or something are they going to be feeling pain pretty quickly um
1: i I think it varies as you know from patient to patient but i think you see all types of uh, responses you know there's some patients with autoimmunity they, they just uh there's such severe blood sugar instability, they have to eat some nut butter to get through the day, and that's what makes them work. And that's you know, and, uh, they don't have any reactions when you check them with those food proteins. So, you know, we're not uh, 100% on using elective free diet with, with all, all no, warm. no, I
0: get it, I get yeah. it. I'm just wondering if it would, if it prompts agglutination, would it actually exacerbate symptoms pretty quickly? Oh, I would that's think, me- oh, yeah, yeah,
1: I think it's immediate. I think yeah. as soon as you expose exposed, it's immediate. It's not a delayed reaction or anything. Because once those uh, proteins come in, they glutinate. The immune response is uh, um, immediate just through the complement proteins. So you can see complement proteins like C3, C4A go up really quickly when people have glutination mm-hmm. um, when they have an acute response. And then the other key thing is that this is also why we did some of our cross reactive work with uh, food proteins. Um, we published a paper on, we, we purified 200, foods um, to see which cross trap with thyroid autoimmune target sites and those with people that have uh, type 1 diabetes. um, By looking at the target proteins for those autoimmune diseases. And the reason we did that is because, you know, when you see patients come in that have autoimmune disease, they have pretty much lost their tolerance to food proteins. So they react to almost every food protein you test. And then the question is, well, you know, you don't want them to go off everything because then they're not going to have much to eat and if they limit their food so much, they're going to lose their diversity in their gut and then that's going to cause more problems. So which food proteins really matter most? So this is why we did some cross-reactive research and published it where we looked at, for example, people that have type 1 diabetes. We looked at cross-reactivity with GAD65 and we found certain food proteins directly cross-react with GAD65. Mm. And um, Which ones? Oh... I don't uh, I have the list in front of me, but I would say okay. a, a third of them were because um, we check six different target proteins. Uh-huh. So we have different ones for each one. So usually what I do is when we have a patient that has type one diabetes, we'll do a Sirex or A10, see which foods they react to and then compare that with their uh, type one diabetes autoimmune target protein, whether it was islet cell or GAN65, for example. Uh-huh. And then, then we'll see or IE2 or ZN28. And then we we'll see which ones of the ones that they had results positive with the foods and their specific tissue autoimmune target protein antibody are on that list. And then we get them off those foods. And that allows us to be a little bit uh, more versatile when we look at their food proteins that they need to avoid for sure. So I think we need to break down all the different autoimmune diseases with their specific cross-reactive food proteins that will make the practice of autoimmune disease much more clear. That's really what um, we've been trying to do to some degree. Huh. We've been trying to pick out the autoimmune disease and go, which chemicals, when they bind to proteins, cross-react, and which yes. foods cross-react. So when they react against everything, which ones do you really need to do?
0: Right, right, right. So we
1: did that. We started with the Hashimoto's one. We published that paper in the Journal of Thyroid Research where we purified 200 foods uh-huh. and checked for cross-reactivity with TSH, TPO, thyroglobulin, T3, T4, thyroid-binding globulin, and we found a list of foods. So if I have a patient with Hashimoto's, I'll check them against those foods and see what they react for. We then just recently submitted a paper and in submission right now, where we looked at many chemicals that can bind to proteins and then cross-react with the thyroid. So we're trying to map out the foods and chemicals that cross-react with each autoimmune disease specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting with type one diabetes and Hashimoto's first mm-hmm. because they're the most prevalent. And, uh, uh, that's what I'm doing in my practice with some of my autoimmune patients because we have the data for it. Um, but I wish we had more research done. It's just hard and expensive to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. God, that's really, that's really pretty interesting. And so then when you put them on that specific diet and you're not pulling them off of everything, yeah. they respond and that's sufficient.
1: Yeah. We'll see some, sometimes uh, they'll just go off a certain food, like uh, seaweed and the hashimoto's and then, to see a huge change in how they feel and how they function. And it's a cross-reactive one that's very specific.
0: Seaweed. Mm-hmm.
1: That was just an example. So I have about three I have three case studies. One I just submitted to a journal uh, about how we looked at cross-reactivity and we removed those cross-reactive foods and we saw some changes in the lab markers and how they function. So I'm hoping to publish the other two as well, um, or at least get them submitted. But at least, you know, we're trying to – that's that's really the focus of our clinical model with autoimmune disease is – cross-reactivity and specific foods instead of just the the whole list yes you know so lectins for example is getting a lot of attention because i think agglutination takes place with a lot of people that have arthritic autoimmunity and agglutination with their autoimmunity but it's not the case for everyone yes but when people aren't looking at specific autoantibody markers and evaluating them and they just kind of could jump up with that theory then it's a little too aggressive but when you actually look at people's Immune responses, for example, if we do a Cyrex array 5 and see 24 tissue antibodies, and then we compare that with the food cross-reactivity and the chemical cross-reactivity with Cyrex array 11 and 10, and then we can see the big picture. Not everyone reacts to lectins, and not everyone reacts to chemicals, and not every autoimmune target protein shows up with everyone. Not everyone's systemic, everyone you knows. And then there's specific cross-reactivity for each form of autoimmune antibody reaction. And each of those patients are totally unique. I think one of the things that happens with autoimmunity is people just classify that as a group practitioners go, Oh, it's autoimmune disease. Just fix the gut and just give them off You're like, that's, that's too general. They're all, we still need an individualized personalized approach to them. Yes. So I think functional medicine uh, does a really good job of that, but I think also it, it can be done with greater depth where, each autoimmune disease is personalized and each target protein is personalized and each Mm cross-reactive reaction is personalized. Mm -hmm. And that's, so that's what, what I'm trying to do in my clinical practice. And that's what I'm trying to do with the research we're publishing is to try to dig deeper there that way.
0: So I got, I have a couple of questions around that. It does make a lot of sense. And then, you know, of course we would steer people away from kind of this orthorexia thing, you know, and I think that's what's happened, like a lot, everybody who has autoimmune disease adopts an autoimmune paleo, and then they're sort of on the journey towards, you know, fasting their microbiome, and, you know, unless they're really careful developing micronutrient insufficiency, and maybe losing tolerance, you know, beyond where they were, so if you, do, if you stratify, stratify, stratify as you're doing, I mean, that's really pretty cool. So in theory, you might be able to pull an autoimmune patient off of just a you know, very select handful of foods using your approach.
1: Right, exactly. That's the point. That's the whole, that's what we're trying try to keep the diet as diverse as possible.
0: And you're, and you're actually finding that to be true in it, your clinic practice? That you're able yeah, to really... Yes,
1: but I'm going in bias too. So I have to be yeah. careful how I'm looking at my information because I want it to be so right. true, you know?
0: Well, you know what? <laughs> One of the interesting things, I mean, I understand certainly having worked with elimination diets for my entire career and doing mm-hmm. looking at a lot of laboratory data. I mean, you can tell by, you know, the intensity of the response, you know, the antibody level, you know, what yeah. might be the... Um, primary sensitizer and then you can tell by the strength you know what's probably Um, cross-reaction so that's one thing Um, but you can over time I mean if somebody's got you know if somebody has a long time intestinal permeability or you know immune dysregulation those cross-reactions become clinically you know very relevant and so therefore you 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 can't for everyone put them on that nice abridged elimination you actually have to do something pretty broad while you're rebuilding. I agree that's true that's very true
1: and I, and I, and I think also that um, you know I think when we look at as, as functional medicine practitioners we have different groups of patients come in some come in and the most appropriate thing to do is just put them on an anti-inflammatory diet and just put them on a gut diet and see them get their inflammation down but then we have a whole different group of patients that come in that have already been on a leaky gut diet or taking like 30 supplements, have worked with six different practitioners, they have a narrow yes. list. Yes. And they're a, they're a completely different clinical scenario, clinical, approach, you know, scenario. Yes. With those patients, there's not, nothing left to remove. Yep. There's nothing left to do in your yep. you do. And then also a lot of the research we published on cross-track let's say with the thyroid and type 1 diabetes, many of those foods were on the autoimmune paleo diet. So, even though they're on the autopilot diet, they still react to various food proteins that directly cross react with their target proteins. Yes.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get that. Yeah. Things that we would think are, you know, pretty hypoallergenic
1: yeah i think it depends on the kind of practice each functional medicine practitioner has i mean i think if they're new doing functional medicine in a community somewhere i mean all the just getting a patient on some fish oils and cutting off fried foods and maybe supporting yes. their gut is going to have a huge impact with them yeah that's right and for other functional medicine practitioners they're they're seeing people who have already been in the functional community and they maybe the sixth person on their list and they've already done a lot of things and now you're trying to just get them to eat more foods and so, you know, there's different populations of patients. And I think that's why functional medicine's is so cool.
0: Yeah, so, I know. Yeah. yeah, we can enter into the conversation and really affect great change at any level. And I know, so, you know, those of us who've been doing this for a while are starting to see more of these people who've self-prescribed a lot of stuff or have been to a lot of other clinicians. Um, and then, and there is this careful expansion with diet and rebuilding the microbiome and, you know, making sure micronutrients are at adequate levels and it's in so what you're proposing and i'm saying this to all the clinicians out there encountering this you know what detise is really talking about here is sort of this precision investigation around what are the primary problem proteins that cross react with the tissues in the body and this is something that you're fleshing out but what if you, if a clinician wants to actually understand this and practice this, where how, how are they going to learn what you're doing? Where are you? Is it, has this been published? I mean, are you teaching these concepts?
1: So I, I mean, I put together the the Cross Institute as an education uh, uh, resource for people. Um, mm-hmm. Where we we're starting with information and going to some of these concepts, but yeah, we have published the, this information. So,
0: can you send me? I'll just if I have my staff ping you or your yeah. your. I would like. I really like to, you know, list as many citations as possible because you've mentioned a lot today, and it would just be. I think people are going to be extraordinarily interested in them. Sure,
1: and and the, the papers we publish, we always we only pick journals where the journal will give us an open access option once it gets approved. Um, and we okay. try to make we try to make all of our publications open access. Um, sure. So uh, we feel like uh, as we put together a budget for our research project, we have to budget in the fee to make it public access because it does, the information just doesn't get out there when people have to spend sixty dollars to get a copy of a journal. So the, the papers that we talked that we did in cross reactivity in the um, Journal of Thyroid Research and Diabetes Research, we did opt for the open access. So everyone can access the paper without having a paper.
0: Perfect. That's fabulous. Listen, I just wanted to I just want to circle back to this comment you made about Hashimoto thyroiditis mm-hmm. and seaweed. I mean, we tend to pull people who've got autoimmune thyroid disease off of seaweed because we want to kind of be in control of the iodine exposure. So that's sure. usually something most of us are careful around. But you're actually saying that there is a cross reactive protein within seaweed that promotes Autoimmune thyroid disease.
1: Yeah, and I believe this was cross reactivity with, cross-reactivity with uh, T3. That if you, but if you have, but uh, remember, the cross reactivity only matters if you actually make antibodies against that food protein. So, if someone was eating, let's say, a food protein or the received or some other food protein, but didn't have an antibody against it, then there's no consumer cross reactivity. But if they do make the antibody and the antibody has a structural similarity um, to the target protein, like let's say TPI antibody or. Uh, tibia target proteins, then you can have the, you can have the interaction take place. So, um, I mean, we met that at eight different target sites for the, for the thyroid. So I think seaweed was on, was specific with T3, but, uh, it's all in the, it's all in the paper. I actually still look it up myself. I don't have them all memorized. Uh, I just look at the food reaction list they have and look at the data we have and, and then we try to, you know, have those patients not eat those foods.
0: Oh, that's very that's, okay. Well we'll list we'll we'll link to it for sure. And yeah. I completely understand needing to look up your work. <laughs> I completely <laughs> understand that. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, just having worked on the laboratory evaluations and in integrative and functional medicine and, and I published a collection yeah. of case studies and yeah, I have to refer back if I wanna remember.
1: Yeah, especially if you're doing one study and the other similar, another study similar and another study similar and then another study yeah. similar and then you're writing doing
0: Manuscript writing for
1: one, analysis another. It's too easy to. Well, you know, for me, I need to. I need to look at the actual <laughs> document again.
0: Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right. Let me just ask you, for clinicians, um, what? So you're using the Cyrex arrays, and you're looking yes. at the foods. You're looking at the various. um I think you're doing the predictive auto antibody panel, and then mm-hmm. you're doing the chemicals. Yes. And you're looking. What kind of stool testing are you doing?
1: Um, I just do the the basic one through Genova. You do? do,
0: yeah. Okay. Oh, the the culture one, the CDSA. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and then, what else are you doing for tests? Oh, you actually mentioned about looking at T <coughs> T, T cell function. And what kind of panels are you? What are you well, doing there?
1: Most of my testing I do is actually mostly from lab corp. It's not really from the functional medicine labs. Yeah. Know?
0: Yeah. Dude, I, mean, I, I got it. I got I it. Do,
1: I mean, I think that's such an undervalued thing with uh, yes. functional medicine practitioners. are so into all these designer labs and it's like there's so much data to get from just routine lab work. So I do a lot of just routine lab work. Um, T and B cell profiles, complement proteins, um, you know, chem 24, CVC. And that, I would rather do a complete, blood chemistry profile than any functional medicine test any day because I get so much more information from it. So um, I do do a lot of routine lab work in combination with a lot of SIRX testing, and then I do some profiles from Genova, and uh, that's kind of the, the fundamental basis for, and then you can, you know, divert, you know, you can diverge out to other specialty labs based on the patient's complaint, but for the most part, those are the three fundamental types of testing I do.
0: Good. Okay, uh, and again, we'll link to your institute, so if people wanna, I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing some teaching over there around the labs that you're using and how to interpret them? Yes. Okay, good, because I know if you're doing a chem screen and a CBC and gleaning more information off of it, as you say, than some of our specialty tests, people are people are gonna wanna know what you're doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I'm trying to teach people step by step the clinical model, but, uh, but, you know, like for me, I rewrite my neuro, I rewrite my exam every few months, and I rewrite my intake forms, and rewrite everything I do because I'm always trying to fine tune my clinical model. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just trying to teach the clinical model after many, many revisions. Like for the first one is neuroinflammation, and the second course I'm teaching is gastrointestinal, and the third course of teaching is autoimmune, and um, I spent countless hours refining the, how I go through a step by step approach to not miss anything. And I'm, so that's what I'm teaching at the Krager Institute is uh, the clinical approach that I have been working on and uh, and I hope it's useful for clinicians because I think many times we all go to seminars and we get a lot of good research information, but not really a step- by-step clinical approach and yes, and then we usually get that at the breaks talking to each other. Yes. <laughs> so I was trying to the whole purpose of me developing my institute was to. Just get to that information
0: and Perfect. share with people. Yeah, what is actually going to change the way that we practice and deliver patient care and get our helpfully walk our patients towards health? Um, I, you know, I've got so many other questions for you. You've just done a lot of really interesting work over the years. Um, one of the, I just, so again, I was reading this, Pretty nice interview that you um, had with Bob Browntree, and um, you talked about being at Harvard and Harvard a being remarkably open-minded, much to your surprise, like really kind of embracing who you are and what your area of interests are and and what you're bringing to science or you representing sort of quote, alternative medicine. So A, they were way more open-minded and B, they're recognizing the limitations of the clinical research model as it exists today. And just in summary, I wanted to get you know, kind of leap from this idea to sort of where you see us heading in um, in 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 clinical research, and what kind of mo- model is viable and is actually going to be able to capture, you know, what it is we do as functional medicine clinicians.
1: Well, I think with functional medicine, we definitely cannot do the clinical trial model, because and that's it's unfortunate because the you know the double blinded placebo controlled clinical trial is really where the highest level of evidence is because you can knock out all the different variables that can skew your data. But the problem with the clinical trial is you have a short period of time where you collect data and you look at one endpoint, like maybe a risk factor and um, you don't, you do one intervention and then you compare that with the control group and you see an outcome. And that's not really how we practice in functional medicine. And that type of model, a clinical trial model, the whole purpose of it is to have what they call generalizability, where that data applies to the general population. And the goal of the clinical trial is to make it as generalizable as possible because when they do a drug intervention, that they can have it applied to as many different people as possible. And that's completely opposite of our research model and our treatment model and functional medicine because it's not a generalizable model. It's a personalized yeah. model. Yeah. So we really can't do a, an effective clinical trial you know functional medicine model doing real functional medicine because real functional medicine we're coming in and we're not just giving him like alpha-lipoic acid for next six weeks or six months and seeing an, right. end, an endpoint change
0: right. we're changing diet
1: we're changing lifestyle we're changing sleep we're giving supplements we're modifying we're changing all the way through the treatment you how they respond or not respond so we can't do an effective clinical trial not to say we can't take evidence from clinical trials about various things and use them in our clinical model, which we can, when we do in functional medicine, but we have to do what they um, do, what they call an N of one trial. N of one trials, when you look at a patient and you look at their data and you see how their data changes with different interventions, for example, CRP or homocysteine or TPO antibodies. And then you, you can then see which variables combined together, make the biggest change. So it was actually speaking with, uh, some of the people at IFM and they were talking about designing research, you know, and uh, I'm like, the only chance we have is to do yeah. NF1 clinical trials to really show this personalized lifestyle medicine model. And that was something that I learned from Martha Herbert at, yeah. uh, as my mentor at uh, Harvard Medical School, because she's working with uh, children that suffer for autism and, they have to do end-of-one trials or they can't get the accurate data because there's too many variables and one child with autism is completely different than another child and there's different things that aggravate and flare them up compared to from one to, to another and, uh, and they respond to different things. So I think the problem we have is we have a lot of physicians that just go, if it's not double-blind clinical trial, you know, double-blind placebo clinical trial, then, it has, then it's no use to me. But they don't understand, honestly, research models and that's a generalizable model and that's completely different than a personalized lifestyle medicine model. So at the end of the day, when people get sick, they want a personalized model. <laughs> yeah.
0: Know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, are they, do the, it seems like they're sort of getting that at, at Harvard. I mean, would you see, would oh, you yeah. say that we're actually, we're, we're, we're go- science is going in that direction.
1: I, my experience being at the uh, Harvard Medical School for a while in a, such a small, great community, they, they're frustrated with everything. <laughs> you know? And they're open to everything and they're not, uh, they're just yeah. trying to, st- everything that, basically everything I learned, and I was at Harvard Medical School from a, as a researcher, not as a medical student, so it might be a different experience as a medical student there, but as part of the research community there, um, as a research fellow, and then looking at my master's in medical, clinical investigation there. Those are different subsets. I could tell you that um, they see everything they do has a limitation and everything has a bias. And then they look at entire healthcare system that way and data that way. And when you do it that way, it's really hard to have a prejudice of let's say alternative medicine versus conventional because each one of them have their own biases and their own limitations. Right. Yeah. So it's just data. And it was really surprising to see such a pure evaluation of information. And these are because they're highly trained researchers and they understand these things. And I think clinicians tend to have really significant bias um, because If they haven't learned it, they can't be real or, you know, and uh, they don't really understand research methodologies. So they tend to just, uh, you know, listen to whatever their peers do and what they're told to do. And they're not critically analyzing anything. But uh, Harvard is completely open to alternative medicine. uh, Most of the study with leaky guts done by Fasano there at Mm -hmm. Mass General. Um, A lot of brain gut access research there. They have the Osher uh, alternative medicine clinic there right at the Brigham Young Hospital, um, there's a lot of the women's health studies that are done with diet, and nutrition, lifestyle changes over many years is done there. I mean, there is so much functional medicine research done at Harvard Medical School that um, it's complete, completely shocking to me and at the same time very refreshing. And then there's a whole division at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is just doing chemical research on things like BPA, and they totally get it. Um, and uh, there's obviously those that are doing the large drug trials, so... Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was really fascinating to see you know what people can like, I mean, Harvard Medical School is ranked number one medical research for 80 years in a row <laughs> <By every>, uh, <laughs> They that's a
0: pretty good track record
1: <laughs> and they have uh, uh, 12,000 active research labs there with the, um, really yes it's, it's huge
0: it's, it's a
1: small community but it's lots of research labs all over and um, I think uh, what they're doing there is just going to support everything we do in functional medicine not not by intent, but just because they're looking for ways to help chronic diseases. Yeah. So and they're doing some major breakthrough research now with the blood-brain barrier, the a model, where they can really evaluate the blood-brain barrier. And oh, fascinating. Connections with celiac and gluten and fasanos and including some of that, and this whole group of divisions doing the microbiome research on the heart and on the brain. I mean, it's
0: amazing. <laughs> well hi we could just keep going I would love to continue to talk to you about this and how you evaluate blood-brain barrier for example <laughs> how do you? I do I do
1: is a cyrex-ray 20 okay is a great t- test uh, and then that'll that'll be a more stable marker if you're looking for an acute reaction just with lap work you can order s100b um, and I like to order both so if it's very acute I'll see s 100 B protein elevations with just a routine lab test. And then I'm looking to see really a more stable blood-brain barrier integrity marker. Other will do 20, which is blood-brain barrier protein antibodies. And if those are breached, I mean, the patient's in serious risk for significant brain inflammation and development of neurological autoimmunity. I mean, it's a, big, it's a really big deal if there's blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, yeah. and this is one of the things that I spend uh, two and a half hours on, on the. Uh, <laughs> um, neuroinflammation course that I'm teaching. Okay. Just in all the mechanisms that break down the blood-brain barrier, all the things that have been shown to heal it, and what are the effects when the blood-brain breaks down in research studies now and what do we know about it. It is, it is really – I mean, if you're a clinician and you see blood-brain barrier protein in your body's per, uh, positive, you should be very worried about your patient. <laughs> mm.
0: do you, have you used the um... – Cunningham panel at all? Have you explored that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, just the dopamine receptors. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a great way to look at uh, um, it, infection-related autoimmunities to the different dopamine receptors, and uh, yeah, and uh, it's a, it's it's a it's a great test.
0: And folks, the S one hundred B test that you can get at LabCorp that. Um, Datis just mentioned is um, S100 calcium binding protein B Um, and it looks like it's I have never ordered it before but this is something we can get at lab this is a standard Mm -hmm. autoantibody protein that we can measure
1: yeah it's not as it's not as stable and reliable as blood-brain barrier protein antibody because it's the acute phase breakdown that you see those up with it meaning if someone had a head injury you'll see the S100 B elevated for a while okay but then the blood-brain barrier could still be breached, and you would only really catch that with,
0: um, like early, early
1: the antibody then... array array 20. Yeah, huh. but it gives you. But if you saw, for example, high S100B and high blood-brain barrier protein, you know there's an acute inflammatory breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. If you saw S100B levels normal, the blood-brain barrier protein antibody positive, you know it's not an acute breakdown anymore. It's just permeable. You know, it's still still an issue.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Well, Dr. Krausian, it's been really great to talk to you and hopefully I'll see you actually at AIC. Are you going to be at the end of the conference? Good, good. Good. All right. Well, thanks for coming in New Frontiers. Thanks everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.